There is a bulletin insert that you received in terms of financial giving. I just wanted to mention it. We are, as a church, uh, in need in terms of meeting our financial uh, goals that we set for this year. We're doing okay, but the reality is um, that we could be doing much, much better. Uh, As we head towards the end of the year, we have about a month to make up uh, a ton of money in terms of giving. And so you have the bulletin insert, and I'll say for a couple more Sundays, uh, for those of you uh, that have been praying about way to bless our church and ways to further the mission of God here, and you've been looking for an opportunity to give either a one-time gift on top of what you're already giving, uh, this will be a great time to do that. So I want to ask you guys to prayerfully think about that as well. And those of you that have never uh, given consistently for you to pray about what that would mean for you in the upcoming new year to be able to give. The ministries of our church is dependent on you uh, and your generosity. So I want to ask you guys to make note of that. Guys, there's some seats up here, those that are walking in late. Uh, and there's some seats on the side. So, um, and there's some seats up in the balcony. Ushers, if you guys could uh, usher some folks up in the balcony area as well. That will be helpful as they come in. Okay? So will you prayerfully uh, go before God about giving uh, for this rest of the year? We've got a month left. Uh, We believe that God is faithful and that he will provide for all of our needs. So open your Bibles with me to Jonah. (laughs) Chapter Romans. It's because I've been thinking about Romans, okay? That's my excuse. Jonah chapter 4, okay? We are going to finish the book of Jonah in 10 weeks. That is quite an accomplishment, let me tell you. We are finishing the book of Jonah in 10 weeks. What's that? It's supposed to be four? Oh, it was supposed to be four? Really? No, no, no. I'm really slow. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and finish it in 10 weeks. Um, and next Sunday and the Sunday after that, we'll do a two-part sermon series called Rediscovering Christmas. And uh, just to let you know, last few months, I've essentially just engrossed myself in books written by scholars and commentators about what life in the first century was like. To give us a context in which the birth of Christ took place. And I'm learning things and discovering things that I kind of knew in the back of my mind, but I've never known before. So next week and the week after uh, will not only be a huge rediscovery, a learning process, but I think it's going to challenge and encourage us. I want to encourage you not only to come, but to invite somebody. Okay, Jonah chapter 4. Brief background, and then we're going to actually read together uh, Jonah chapter 4. The story of Jonah begins with the prophet Jonah. Coming and God saying to him, I want you to go to the evil and wicked city of Nineveh. Yes, Jonah, your hated enemy state. And I want you to preach repentance. And it takes Jonah a while. Goes on a bit of a detour, but he finally gets there. Jonah chapter 3, he begrudgingly preaches a five-word in Hebrew sermon. The entire city repents of its evil and its wickedness. God extends grace and compassion to them. And then we come to Jonah 4, which nobody expects. Nobody expects. Jonah chapter 4. Here's what the word of God says. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. That's good. Slow to anger and abounding in love. That's good. A God who relents from sending calamity. That's good. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This chapter could be entitled The Incredible Collapse of Jonah or What the Heck? I mean, you choose a number of things to describe this because the reality is nobody expects Jonah's response. It's astounding. It's unexpected. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the Bible could not have been written by human beings. Who would write a story like this? C.S. Lewis points this out too. It can't be a myth. Ancient myths weren't written to make the hero look so stupid. The hero of this story is a jerk. He's a racist, self-righteous jerk. Nobody expects this response. And as we end today, continuing from last week, we asked the question, why does Jonah respond the way he does? Why does Jonah respond the way he does? And there are two fundamental reasons why. There might be others, but we only have time for two, so we'll just cover two. One reason we started looking at last week and the other reason we'll see today. One reason why Jonah responds the way he does is in his heart of hearts, there exists worship of, remember we talked about that two weeks ago, worship of two gods, a true God and a rival God. What's the rival God? National security of his people. By the way, people do all kinds of stupid things for the national security of their people. I'll just leave it there. Oh, anyway, so um, (laughs) I'm going to talk about this more in the next two weeks. So if you want to know what I mean by that, you got to come. Okay, anyway, so national security of his people, his self-righteousness, his morality. There exists in Jonah's heart a worship of true God and a worship of rival God. His heart, like us, is divided. It's what James talks about in James 1.8 when he talks about the double-minded man whose heart is unstable in everything that he does. His heart is divided between a true God and a rival God. By the way, when the Bible talks about a pure heart, we think about a sinless heart as in like a heart that is devoid of bad thoughts or bad motives. A pure heart in the Bible is an undivided heart. It's what David prays when he says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. He knows his heart. King David knows his heart. He knows that in his heart exists worship of a true God and a rival God. And here's what happens to Jonah. Here's what happens to us. As long as serving the true God enables us to serve the rival God, things are okay. But as soon as serving the true God means we can no longer serve the rival God, he turned on the true God. As long as we serve the true God, God of Israel, creator God, and we serve the rival God, it's okay. But as soon as serving the true God means I can no longer serve my rival God, whatever that is, we turn on the true God. 
This is the reason why people go along Jonah. Chapter 1, he's in the pits. Chapter 2, I worship you. Chapter 3, he's self-righteous. Here's the reason why one day you could praise God and worship God and say, you're everything to me. And the next day, curse God. In your heart exists the worship of a true God and a rival God. As long as serving the true God, unless you serve the rival God, you're okay with God. But as long as God says, allegiance, who are you committed to? Jonah turns on the true God, if you will, because he functions from the perspective, I'll serve you if. And whatever's on the other side of the if is your true God. Do you hear me? I'll serve you if. I'll love you if. Whatever's on the other side. Look, tell me, who is your true God? Don't tell me about your professed God. Don't tell me. I'm a Christian. I worship the true God. I love Jesus. Tell me who your functional Savior is daily. Who controls you? Who compels you? Who are you giving your allegiance to? Do you know yourself? Do you know your heart? You sit here this morning, spend 20 minutes worshiping the true God, and at the same time in your heart of hearts, a rival God. Listen, the question is not, is your heart divided? Every single one of us. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how much of the Bible you know, every single one of us, in our heart, we have a divided heart. The question is, how bad is it? How ascendant is this rival God in your life? The process of sanctification and growth and maturity, you guys, is learning to die to ourselves, learning to crucify our old nature, and learning to repent of our rival gods every day, and learning to serve and worship the true God for in and of himself. And not what he does for you. Not what he gives you. So what does God do? God doesn't leave Jonah in his state, does he? No. He never leaves Jonah in his state. He doesn't leave us in our state. God loves us too much to leave us where we are. What does God do? God pursues Jonah. He goes after Jonah. Not to angrily strip away his freedom. Because Jonah's not free. But to affectionately strip away his slavery. So that he could truly be free. Are you free this morning? If your rival God has you by the throat. You think you're free. You're not. You're enslaved. Do you know your heart? First point this morning as we finish. I'm talking about the refining love of God. That's what God does to Jonah. He comes with the refining love of God. The word provide, if you're taking notes. The word provide occurs three times in this chapter, right? Three times. And another word for uh, provide is the word appoint. And we're f- told, first of all, that God appoints a comfort, right? He, and it makes Jonah pretty happy. By the way, this is pretty important when it's like 110, 115 degrees outside. By the way, where is this context? Nineveh is Assyria, which is current-day Baghdad, current-day Iraq. My brother-in-law served that in Iraq for nine months, and he would say during the summers, when you go outside, it could reach anywhere from 115 to 120 degrees. Jonah is in the middle of nowhere, 150, 120 degrees, and God appoints a shade, and Jonah is very happy. Now, when we think about the love of God, and God provides a comfort, we have no problems identifying that with the love of God. Yes, he loves me. Shade, comfort, things are good. But God also, in his love, provides what? 
discomfort. God in his love provides discomfort. God in his love provides an agricultural disaster. He wrecked Jonah's vines. Anybody's vines being wrecked these days by God? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> he does. And a nasty weather pattern to bring discomfort. And we go, that's not God's love. Shade, comfort, God's love. This is God's love. And I say to you, yes. The refining love of God that brings discomfort as much of the love of God as comfort. As much as love of God as comfort. Let me play it this way. How do you save someone that you love from a drunken state? Do you reason with them? Do you have a conversation with them? You know what? You can't drive tonight. Give me your keys. You know, kill yourself. What do they say? They go, you know, you are so right. I can't drive. I can't even walk a straight line. Thank you so very much for caring for me. You're a good friend. Is that what they do? No. What do they do? They try and hit you. Aim's not very good. They try and punch you. They, try to, they say, no, give me my keys. But if you love them and they see the purpose of your love, someday they will come to you and say what? Thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for taking my keys. If you had not done that for me, I don't know where I would be today. Is that love? I heard a pastor say this, and I said, amen. Parents, you know what a definition of a child is? Definition of a child is someone who's mildly inebriated until they reach a certain age. (laughs) Picture that, okay? Picture that five-year-old. Someone who's mildly inebriated until they reach a certain age. What do I mean? You know what a good parent is doing? A good parent is constantly doing what God did to Jonah. A good parent is constantly getting their child exceedingly mad. Why? If you're a selfish parent and you're a bad parent, all you're doing is thinking about your present. All you're thinking about is your present. So you give in to your child. You let them have what they want because, God forbid, I don't want my child to be angry at me. I don't want my child to be upset at me. So you constantly give them what they want. You're not thinking about their future. They're going to be terrible adults, but it doesn't matter. But a parent who truly loves their child doesn't have a present orientation to their love. They have a future orientation to their love. They're saying, I'm thinking about your future. I'm thinking about the kind of man or woman that you're going to be. And the kind of man or woman that I want you to be, I'm going to get you exceedingly mad right now. Because you getting that, you having that means you're going to be a terrible adult. Are you tracking so far? (laughs) I know you and I have a hard time with this understanding God's love. A good parent says, I'm not going to go mind the fact that today you're going to be mad at me. Because I don't want to give in right now and be present oriented. And God does the same thing to us. Listen, oh, I wish. Oh, oh. God comes to you and says, I have a desire for you. I want you to be what you want to be in your heart of hearts. God comes to you and me and he says, in your heart of hearts, you want to be a person of integrity. You want to be a person of courage. You want to be a selfless person. You want to be a person of conviction. In your heart of hearts, I want you to be the kind of person that you desire to be. But in order for me to have you be the kind of person that you want to be, there are times when my refining love Refining love comes and says, this might get you exceedingly mad, but I'm not concerned about your response to me right now. I'm concerned about who you're going to be. 
Is that a parent who just said amen? I don't my love to have a future orientation. Why would God do this to me? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. What God does is he comes and wrecks Jonah's vine. Anybody's vine's been wrecked lately? If it hasn't, oh, you wait. Why? His refining love. What are your vines? You know what the vines are? They're the things. They're your life rafts. They're the life rafts that you and I hold on to saying, this is what makes me happy. The relationships, the goals, the jobs, the security, the money, the wealth, whatever. These are my life rafts. And God comes and says, as long as you hold on to those life rafts and you don't let them go because you think they give you identity and meaning, you're always going to be a child. You're always going to be immature. You're always going to act out of immaturity, like a child, like Jonah, like me, like you, like us. And God comes and says, why this relationship, God? Why? God comes and says, because I want you to be the person that I see you becoming. So I'm going to give my love for you a future orientation and not a present orientation. I've got to show you things that if you rest in your life rafts, you make them your happiness. Can I just, I, how many of you are just tired of emotional roller coaster mood swings? How many of you are tired of letting disappointments just ruin your day? How many of you are tired of losing joy because of some event and circumstances? All of us. And God says, don't you want to be strong? Don't you be the kind of person that could withstand circumstances in life? Don't you be the kind of person that could handle disappointments in life and still be so? Don't you be the kind of person that has such confident humility that no matter what happens, you can move through life strong. If you do, you've got to let me draw you near to me like this. The refining love of God. You know what's funny? Not funny, interesting. In the Bible, God says God is a consuming fire. Think about the analogy of fire. It's both warm, comforting, and also purifying, refining. It's both. It's always both. Finding love of God. If your vines are being wrecked, and there's discomfort in your life, praise God that he loves you too much to let you be where you are. I know that for some of you, it's like, that doesn't make you any feel better. I know, I know, I know. It's not supposed to make you feel better, okay? It's truth that transforms, amen? Secondly, second reason, and we, oh, I wish we had a whole sermon for this, okay? Because I've got, I got emails from people going, Pastor Peter, I heard sermons on Jonah. This is, he has a problem with listening to a lot of people's sermons, right? When you hear a sermon, you go, that's not what this means. Well, I, there are people who said, isn't one of the areas that we learn from Jonah. One of the principles is this aspect. Next slide, please. Forgiveness and grace. Grace and forgiveness and justice. Grace and forgiveness and justice. In other words, the reason why Jonah responds the way he does, let's look at the, 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 the context in which uh, God's mission to Jonah comes. Assyria is already establishing itself as a world superpower. Assyria is gaining power and control of the world, as we saw last week, through violent, ruthless means. Now, here's the thing. You got to remember this. At the time that Jonah's call, mission call comes, Assyria has not exiled Israel yet. 
It's going to be 20, 30 years before Assyria actually comes and exiles and takes captive Israel. But Jonah is very well aware, his people are very well aware of the fact that there is this looming, essentially, bully over them. There's a constant threat to them. There's a constant threat to that region, constant threat to the world. And it is to this hated group that God's mission comes to Jonah and says, it is to them that I want you to preach the gospel. So the question, next slide please, is how do you treat someone who wrongs you? How do you forgive someone who wrongs you? This is one of the subtexts. Okay. Michael, can I get some water please? How do you deal with people who wrong you? How do you deal with people who wrong you? Huh? Pray for? (laughs) There's a very spiritual Christian answer. I pray for him. And I'll talk about that in a moment. I know it's the truth. I'm not saying, I'm not down in praying for people. Of course, you want to pray for people. Here's how most of us deal with people who wrong us. You hate them on the inside and you say nothing on the outside. Not if this is true of you. I know there's like five of us who hate them on the inside and we hate them on the outside too. I know, I know. So we have no problems, no problems. But you know, we're good Christian folk. So we hate them on the inside. There's nothing on the outside, right? Most of us. That's what Jonah's doing. Look, that's what Jonah's doing. He's hating them on the inside and on the outside, he wants to say nothing. He's hating on the inside. He wants to say nothing to these hated people. What does God do? Listen, God says the exact opposite. He says, you love them on the inside and you speak truth on the outside. It's the exact opposite. He says, you forgive and you love them on the inside and you speak truth on the outside. You go and you're willing to confront on the outside. You seek justice. You seek to get them to see the truth. You seek, get, you seek to get them to see what's right. You get as much as possible for them to do what's right. You work for, the, in other words, the common good. And I'll talk about that in a moment. By the way, all of this is Miroslav Volf, Exclusion and Embrace. Anybody read that book? Like, that's a must reading for any Christian. Miroslav Volf, V-O-L-F, Miroslav Volf, Exclusion and Embrace. I'm literally like just, you know. Copying him, reading. This is what he says. It is critical, though, that if you are going to be this God, biblical person that's going to do this right, before you confront, before you speak out, that you deal with the anger and hate in your heart. I'm just getting started. I wish if you all get it, we could say amen and move on. But that's not easy. How many of you think, amen, how many of you are like the rest of us, Thaddeus, that are like, Get rid of the anger and hate? I don't think so. How many? Most of us? Most of us? Most of us? Okay. okay. So we're going to talk about that. So when someone wrongs you, hurts you, abuses you, the one thing that God doesn't allow is vengeance. This is the five of you that are like, that's me. Vengeance is mine. <laughs> what is vengeance? This isn't funny for some of us, really, seriously, right? Here's what vengeance is. Listen, vengeance is you pummel the wrongdoer. And the goal is not upholding justice. The goal is not upholding truth. The goal is not thinking about the right thing for the world. The goal of vengeance is I'm just going to deal with my hurt. And the way I deal with my hurt is I hurt you more than you hurt me. Vengeance. And God says no to vengeance. God says no to vengeance. But the other thing that God doesn't allow 
is, listen, listen, resignation. Oh, well, it is what it is. I can't, they're never going to repent. They're never going to turn around. I can't undo the wrong. So, oh, well. And I check this out. We look at the void and go, wow, they're very Christian. Look at that. They're just resigned. The avoider and, if you will, the pummeler, they're exactly the same. Do you know why? Because both are just trying to deal with the justice by their own hurt. They're not caring about the person who wronged them. Their main concern is, how do I deal with my hurt? The pummeler, I deal with my hurt by pummeling you. The avoider, I deal with my hurt, Miroslav Wolf, excluding you. You're dead to me. I want nothing to do with you. And we think that's forgiveness. We walk away going, I'm being a good Christian. And God says, Neither is biblical. Bible proof? God doesn't say, God doesn't say pay evil with evil vengeance. But God also doesn't say avoid evil. What does God say? God say pay evil with good. Confront evil with good. So the choice is not, I avoid it. I don't want to think about it. And the choice is not, I pummel you and hurt you more than you hurt me. The choice is what? Forgiveness. Do you know what forgiveness is? Here it is. Definition of forgiveness. Next slide, please. Forgiveness is getting rid of dealing with the hate and anger before you deal with the wrongdoer. Forgiveness is dealing with the hate and anger before you deal with the wrongdoer. And you need to catch this. At some point, you have to deal with the wrongdoer. And you go, I don't want to deal with the wrongdoer. But if you say that, then you're not thinking about the people that that person will have to live with. That that person will have to interact with. You're not thinking about the common good. You're not thinking about other people that that person might hurt. You're not thinking about truth. You're not thinking about justice. You're just thinking about yourself. God calls us to forgiveness. What is forgiveness? It's dealing with the anger and hate so that we can confront, so that we can seek to get them to understand, so that we can get to seek them to know what truth is. Now, they might not respond, but what are you doing? You're in the way of Jesus by not avoiding them and not vengeance. You're seeking truth. You're seeking justice. You're seeking to do the right thing. Does this make sense? I know it's hard. I know it's hard. God calls us to forgive. And now forgiving somebody doesn't mean that you demand no change in them. Forgiving somebody doesn't mean that you demand no change. You don't demand justice. But here's, next slide please. Here's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness provides the framework in which the quest for properly understood justice can be pursued. What do I mean by this? If you haven't utterly forgiven, if you haven't dealt with anger and hate, what's going to happen when you finally go confront them? Pastor Peter told me to confront, so I'm going to go confront. What's going to happen if you haven't deal with the anger and hate? You're always going to overreach. You're going to go to them, and you're going to confront, but you're going to want to hurt them. You're going to want to humiliate them. You're going to want to destroy them. Or you're going to completely avoid them. At the end of the day, you're not thinking about anybody else but who? Yourself. Forgiveness. I deal with my anger and hate so that I can be a person of justice, a person of truth. By the way, can I just say something? If you're a person that's actively involved in issues of justice, poverty, human trafficking, and you've got people in your life you haven't forgiven, you're not responding out of the gospel. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for yourself. Why? 
Next slide. You're never going to do justice unless you forgive. And if you refuse to do justice, it's because you haven't forgiven. The choice is not, do I do justice or do I forgive? The choice is, if you want to be a person of justice, you have to forgive. And if you're refusing to do justice, because you haven't forgiven. This is right, Miroslav Wolf. Next slide. I know I'm going to buy these fast. Next slide. If you want justice and nothing but justice, you'll inevitably get injustice. If there's no love in your heart, you know what you're going to do when you're confronted? When, if there's no love in your heart and you want to say, I want to be about justice, your attitude is, you kill 5,000 of us, we're going to kill 50,000 of yours. And you're sucked right into the cycle of evil and violence. And who wins? Evil wins. So if you want justice without injustice, you have to want what? I feel like I'm sitting in a theology seminary course. Does this make sense? And put in the simplest terms, somebody wrongs you. God says the choice isn't to hurt them back. And the choice also isn't, I'm just not going to do anything. The choice is I got to go confront them for the sake of the common good, for that person's sake. But you're never going to do that right if you haven't forgiven and dealt with your anger and hatred. Because when you finally go, you're going to want to hurt Miroslav, by the way, knows this intimately. He's a Croatian theologian that has seen his people butchered, raped, and murdered. And he says the human solution is pay them back or do nothing. But he said neither will result in true peace. So how do you forgive? By the way, you guys, don't you think this is what Jesus meant when he said, and love your enemies? This is what he meant. It's not warm affection or I just choose not to think of. Loving your enemies is saying, I'm dealing with my anger and hatred so that I can ultimately go to you and saying, I'm about truth and justice. That's what it means to love your enemies. The Christian response is, oh, I just don't think about my enemy. I just don't deal with the enemy. You know, I pray for them. True justice says, I need you to see truth. But in order for me to do that, this anger, this bitterness. Okay, so how do you deal with that? The answer, surprise, the gospel. The cross. By the way, no matter what topic I preach on, what do I always land on? Why? Because it is the answer. Miroslav Volf says this. He says there are two reasons why we don't forgive. We don't truly love. One reason is we have this fear that the perpetrator, if we extend them any humanity, you know, like we're kind to them, we forgive them. If we extend humanity to them, that they're just going to continue to do what they're doing. And so our posture is I have to be the executioner. I have to be the one that's hurt you. Or secondly, we deny our common sinfulness. And how similar we are to the people that hurt us. How similar we are to the perpetrators. And the gospel comes along. The cross comes along and addresses both. Check this out. So the first reason, like, I can't forgive because if I do, if I accept any humanity, that person might go and do the wrong things. And I need to be the judge. God says, I am a perfect judge who will administer perfect justice. Evil will not win the day. Evil will get what it's due when he returns. Amen. So you don't have to be the executioner. You don't have to go, unless I punish you. No, no, God says, ah, leave that to me. I do it much better. Amen? So you don't have to. Second, secondly, 
My main reason why, and I need to move on here, the main reason why we don't forgive is because we deny our common sinfulness, you know? In other words, we refuse to look at them and saying, I am a sinner just like you. Well, what does the cross and the gospel say? The gospel comes and says we are exactly like the people who have hurt us, and yet Jesus dies for us and loves us unconditionally. The cross and the gospel reminds us that we are also sinners, but we are eternally loved and forgiven by a Savior. And that enables us, it frees us up to own up to the fact that I'm not any better than you. I'm not any better than you. And it begins to melt the anger down. It begins to melt the hate. People come up to you and go, Pastor Peter, I want to be able to forgive my mom. I want to be able to forgive my dad. I want to be able to forgive you. They'll hurt me, but I just, I have our time. And if that person is religious to the core, well, in other words, they think they're actually really better than their mom, better than their dad. And at the end of the day, that's the reason why God accepts you. You're never going to be able to forgive anybody because you're never going to admit your flaws. Never. Last slide, and then we'll move on. The gospel reminds us that we're equally sinners. And so it brings emotional humility. Gospel comes and says, we've persecuted God. We've offended God. We've wronged God. We've done all kinds of things against God. And yet, he forgives us. He loves us. And it brings us emotional humility. But also, also brings emotional wealth. It reminds us that we're equally loved. eternally loved. It brings emotional wealth. In other words, the reason why we stay in our anger is because something is taken from us. You know, we've been hurt. Something is taken from us. Our jobs, or we lost faith. It's something that we care about is taken from us. And the gospel comes and says, you are an infinite beauty inside of God. He's given you everything that you need. And then some. He loves you unconditionally, eternally. And nothing could ever take that away. And it brings emotional wealth because you're going to realize, man, I thought I really needed that thing. So I'm so, so angry because that thing I really thought I needed was taken from us. The cross and the gospel comes along and says, God, empty the treasury of heaven for you. Do you know how much you're loved? Last slide. Unless you are so affirmed by God's grace that you don't have the need to be angry, you're not going to forgive. Unless you're so humble by God's grace that you don't have the right to be angry, you're not going to forgive. Anybody in need of forgiveness? You need to forgive somebody today. And you've been holding on to this bitterness, anger, and hatred. And basically, you've been avoiding them. You hate them on the inside, and you're refusing to say anything on the outside. God's call for you, God's call for you is be a person of truth, justice. You've got to speak up. But before you do, let the cross melt your heart. Let the cross melt your heart. I read this letter before, so I'm going to read it really quick once more time about what forgiveness looks like concretely. Once upon a time, I was engaged to a young lady who changed her mind. I forgave her, but it took me a whole year, and I had to forgive her in small sums over the whole 12 months. I paid these sums whenever I spoke to her and kept myself from rehashing the past. I paid them whenever I saw her with another man, and I refused self-pity and rehearsal insight for what she's done to me. I paid them whenever I praised her to others when really all I wanted to do was slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, but she never knew them. 
But I never knew her payments, but I know she made them. I could tell. Forgiveness is not only refusal to hate someone, but it's choosing to love and will the good of the offender. It's painful. But the cross, the nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness. It is as the ultimate cross and nails were, leads to healing and more to resurrection. To which all God's people said, it is amen. Third point. Let's talk about full redemption. Full redemption. What do I mean? So I heard a lot of sermons on the book of Jonah as well, right? And it's funny to me. Because when it got to this part about God saying, what about the cows? What about the animals, Jonah? At the very end. All these pastors like make fun of that line going, I don't know why it's in there. I'm not saying I'm smarter than them, okay? But I think this is what it means. I think this is what it means. This is the reason why God, it's not just to mock Jonah going, if you don't care about the people, at least care about the cows for crying out loud. You know, it's like, what? No, no, that's not what he's saying. What is he saying? For those of us that have been brainwashed here at New Community, know that God's redemption and salvation at the end is not just going to be human souls, but what? All of creation. Ah, maybe. God's redemption and salvation is all of creation. So the many animals and many cattle might seem like a throwaway line, but it is a perspective, a glimpse into this ultimate restoration project that God has for the world. It's not just for human souls. It's for all of creation. Revelation 21.5. Behold, I am, what? Making all things new. God says, I created both the physical and the spiritual. And when I come and redeem, I'm going to redeem both the spiritual and the physical. And there are many cattle as well. Not a throwaway line, folks. Next slide. God's salvation involves the rescue of the material world, not rescue from the material world. God is going to transform this present world into the world to come so that all the voices shout out. Revelation chapter eleven fifteen: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Jesus Christ. And the Lord's prayer, Jesus, the Lord's prayer, let your kingdom come and your will be done on what? On earth as it is in heaven. God's ultimate goal is for the earth to become like heaven. Redemption is heaven comes crashing down to earth and not people being whisked to heavens. You know, it's really great. So God says, so that's the work that I'm going to do. And I'm, I'm going to enlist all of you. First time I came, I started this process. Second time I come back, I'm going to finish this restoration. But until then, I'm enlisting you. That puts the whole Advent thing into a different perspective. Check this out. During Advent, most churches go, we are waiting on God to come and do his work of restoration. You know what I think Advent is? Advent is God waiting on us and saying, get busy. Ha, ha, ha. Advent. Waiting on God, maybe, but it's also God waiting on us to say, get going, get going. Go to Haiti. Go to Haiti. Heal the sick. Pray for the broken. Go to Chicago. Workplace, neighborhoods, heal the sick, cast demons, preach the gospel, care for people. God's redemption and restoration is for all of creation. This heresy in the church, yes, I said heresy, that says that ultimate end goal is that we will be raptured to heaven, is not in the Bible. 
If you want to hear more about that, come back next week and the week after. You guys, the end goal is that God is going to restore all things and he has enlisted you and me. Is that good news? There are many cattle as well. So don't laugh. It's true. Lastly, we're literally finishing the book. I want to end on this, the Jonah principle. The Jonah principle. Failure makes you useful for God. Who says amen to that? Oh, we got a bunch of failures, a bunch of losers in our church. Awesome. This is great. This is great. Yeah, this is great. Absolutely. Failure is the greatest tool I think that God uses to help us understand grace. Why? Definition of grace for the last time is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. How do you receive grace? First of all, you have to see that we are unworthy to receive it, but we have a hard time grasping it. Let me show you how. We think we understand it, but we don't. When we first become a Christian, we say, I'm accepted by grace and grace. I'm accepted by grace and grace alone. I'm accepted by grace and grace alone through faith. And it's not because I'm a good person. We say that. And then we go about our life after a Christian and we fall. We sin. We compromise. We do all kinds of stuff. And then Satan comes with this haunting voice and he says, how can God love you? Who do you think you are? Do you think God can forgive you again for that sin? You're stupid if you think God, Satan comes. And you know what? Our response isn't whatever. Our response is it haunts us. Our response is it bothers us. Our response is it ruins our day. Why? You don't really believe that you're saved by grace. The reason why this voice haunts you. The reason why that voice haunts you, would that voice haunt you? With the voice that says, how can God love you? Would that voice haunt you if you know that you're loved, not because of you, but because of Christ? Would that voice haunt you? No. But it haunts us because what we know intellectually has not experientially transformed us, and that is God's grace is unmerited, undeserved, and it is free. And so therefore, it is unlimited and persistent in its pursuit of us. You can clap to that, church, for crying out loud. Because we don't believe that when the voice comes, it haunts us. And it ruins our day. And what has to happen for us to come to recognition is that, is that we need to be awakened from this attitude that says, I'm saved because I'm good. And how do you get awakened from that delusion? you got to fail. You fail. Like this. We go around going, I can never do that. I can never do that. They do, but I can never do that. And then what do you do? You do it. <laughs> or, I can never be like them. Remember our self-righteous mode, the humanity function. I can never be like them. Oh, if I'm like them, I don't know what I would do with myself. And we realize we're more like them than we think. And the voice calms Haunt. And voice comes, haunts us. And what do we do? What do we do? Failure brings us on our knees and say, and we realize, so I'm not accepted because I'm good? No. So I'm not loved because I behave well? No. So like, for real, for real, I'm accepted and loved because of Jesus? Yeah. I knew that. No. You didn't. Failure. Failure. 
Anybody fail? And for those of you that didn't, raise your hands. You're a liar. <laughs> Either a failure or a liar. One of the two. Pick. Anyway. Here's the thing, though. And we're almost done here. Failure. Failure. Here's the thing. Failure doesn't automatically make you a great person, does it? Because you know what failure does to some of us? Failure drives us deeper inward. You know what I'm talking about, right? Deeper inward. And we become more self-absorbed, more self-pitiful. We're like, oh, I'm such a failure. I'm such a wretched sinner. Da, 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 da. Or sometimes the gospel connects with us and failure drives not inward but outward. And we realize God loves me like that? Really? God loves me like, like that? And instead of it bringing self-absorption and self-pity inward, it brings us outward. Like this story. I've been meaning to share this story. By the way, uh, Carlton, you can come on out because we're finishing up here. I got... During the sermon series, many, many people coming up to me and giving me all kinds of insights and all kinds of sharing things. By the way, I want you to know, I welcome those things. I like those things. I like sharing about your life in front of everybody. You know what I mean? Like, I ask you for your permission first. I, I make mistakes once in a while. I just, you know, so this story, you need to know, I asked like 10 times, can I share it? Can I share it? And he said, yes. He begins by saying, there are two girls that were involved in all of this. And you'll see what I mean by all of this. And I changed their names, of course, Sarah and Chris. They hung out with this one guy, Mike, changed his name also, who lives on my floor in the dorms. They went with Mike to some party, and I found out that they got really drunk. The next morning, the, girl found, the girls found themselves naked, and they realized that they had sex with Mike. Found out that the girls, Sarah and Chris, then went to talk to a detective, and they couldn't make a case against him for rape, but they got him arrested for sexual harassment. And I was talking with Chris, and she began to tell me about how he deserves so much more. And I just started feeling really uncomfortable in my heart. And then he says, here's why. When I was born, my parents left China for the U.S. to be able to give me a better life. Both of my parents were professional athletes. My mom was a diver, and my dad was a badminton player. My mom was an international coach, so we were able to get a visa. We were relatively rich in China, but things were very different here. My parents really struggled at first, because we were really poor. And maybe it was the struggles they went through, but when we moved to Fresno, California, my parents got introduced to God and to Christ and Christianity, and I started going to church with them. But I didn't really understand why I needed a Savior. So we moved to Illinois when I was 12 because my mom's diving program got closed down, a budget cuts at Fresno State, and I got baptized after we soon moved there. But I can say that I actually didn't understand the meaning of getting baptized back then. How many of you are like, I was baptized, I have no idea what happened? Anyone here? <laughs> So you can relate. I think it was because my family and church community wanted me to get baptized. So I did. There were a lot of things that I didn't understand about God and about my faith. But I legitimately, legitimately thought that I was a good person, you know. I, all, I did all the morally right things and I said all the right things. And it wasn't so much that I was a Sunday Christian, but I just didn't understand and grasp the magnitude of Christ's grace and sacrifice. Looking back, I realized that I was judging everyone around me, even without realizing I was judging them. Then came high school junior year, and I started dating a girl. Her name was Sally, and I think God placed her there in my life as a huge storm, just like the one you've been talking about during the Jonah sermon series. I loved her a lot, and I did something that I thought was so bad that not even God could forgive me. I had sex with her. And by the way, when I was reading this email, and he, you know, he wrote, I did something I never, I had sex with her. I was just like, so? You know, honestly, that was my response. I'm like, lots of people, unfortunately, Christians, 
outside of marriage have sex. Not a good thing. Not scriptural, but so. But then it went on. It didn't seem like it was so bad at the time, but it escalated. It's really hard to get out of the pit. Our relationship started becoming more and more physical. It escalated until the end of my senior year when I got her pregnant. And then it escalated even further when she got an abortion. I think about it and I still get so mad at myself. I knew when that happened, even though I loved her, I cared more about myself. I remember having this panic within myself saying, oh no, I can't let my parents find out or else they're going to be so disappointed in me. I live with so much guilt and so much shame. I was still with her when I went into college, but we had a lot of problems. And I can say that all of that was because of me. For a girl to go through all of that, Pastor Peter, she needed somebody to depend on. That was me. But a lot of times, I just blew her off and I did my own thing in college. I'm almost done here. Then an inside transformation began this year. I started hearing the messages and all the sermons. And they were like spears that God was chucking at me. And I finally realized what grace meant. Just like he said, I was undeserving of mercy and forgiveness. And God was totally unobligated to forgive such a sinner like me. But he did. But he did. Sinner like me. He forgave me. And that was such a powerful realization. And this guy has the audacity to say, everything that's happened to me, I am so grateful for because I was able to repent truly for the first time and experience Christ. And I'm starting to realize that this experience, this sin that brought me to God is and should be used to let others know the amazing grace of God. I know that no matter how messed up we are, God already has given us resources available to forgive us, to accept us, to love us, and to go out and make disciples of all nations. How do you think we have the book of Jonah? Ever think about this? Jonah chapter 4 ends, and Jonah's... <laughs> how do you think we have the book of Jonah? Because we don't have Jonah chapter 5. You know why we have book of Jonah? Because Jonah told somebody his story. Jonah actually told somebody, hey, guess what happened to me? Hey, guess what stupid things I did? And guess what God did? Oh, this is God. This is God, Jonah. So repentance is telling somebody, isn't it? Saying. We spent 10 weeks on this sermon series. And about twice, three times, I went before all of you and I gave a gospel challenge to say, if there are those of you that are sitting here and you've been turned off Christianity, turned off from church or turned off from what you think God is because you think that God is a religious person who says I have given you these rules and you meet up to these rules and these stands and do these things then maybe I'll accept you maybe I'll love you and the book of Jonah about sin grace and mission of God says you are not accepted and loved because of you because of what you've done or not done you are accepted because of me 
And you're sitting here this morning going, but I must, my sins are great, Peter. The gospel of Christ says, his grace is greater than your sins. You see, my capacity to sin is so big, you have no idea. God's capacity to forgive you is greater than all your sins. But I've wandered so far from God, Peter. I've wandered so far. God's grace reaches further than your wanderings. You don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't. But God does. And this God says, you child, I died for you. I came to rescue you and to save you. Not because of anything you do. Because of anything I've done. But because of what I've done. I lived the life you should have lived and earned a blessing that such a life deserves. And I died the death you should have died, taking the curse for the punishment of your sins so that when you repent of your sins, acknowledge God, I've been my own Lord and master. I've been running my own life and I'm stinking at being a king and I've made a mess of my life. But if you repent and you believe in Christ, acknowledge that he did that for you. And you surrender your life to him. God says, I remove condemnation and I accept you because of Christ and see you as I see him. God's sin, God's grace, God's mission, the three components we've been talking about converge at the cross. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ takes the toxic weight of our sin He becomes sin, as we sang earlier, and the God-man is killed. We see God's grace also on the cross as Jesus Christ is hanging there, bleeding, naked, being tortured. For who? For me and for you. He's hanging there, refusing to come down. Why? So that he could stand on our behalf. So that he can do what none of us are able to do. We see God's grace along with our sin. We also see God's mission to renew and restore not just lost sinners, but all of creation. This morning, I know, I know, no, no, that there are some of you sitting here today and you've been listening to me, you've been listening to these weeks, and you're sitting there going, I'm a religious person, I've been going to church, but you're not a Christian. A Christian is someone who says, I repent and I believe the work of Christ on my behalf and I surrender and give my life to him. It is by him that I'm accepted. That's what it means to come from kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light. That's what it means to become a Christian. And some of you need to make that decision today. Some of you, today is the day that you decide, I'm going to cross that line, man. I'm tired of being a religious person. Who's going, I want to be a follower of Jesus today. I want you to come up. And we're going to pray for you. And as our church always does, we clap and we welcome you into the kingdom, into the family of God. We pray for you. We love you. And we go on this journey with you. Okay? Is there anybody here today? Anybody here today? Balcony area, main floor. Anybody here today that says, today is the day. Today is the day. I want to do this. Come on up. Come on up. You be the first. Other people will follow. It always happens like that in our church. Always. Come on up. Anybody else? Is there anybody else? Today, 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 today. Come on up. Come here. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? Today, 
today, is there anybody else? Come on, come on. If your heart is stirring, your heart is burning while you're sitting there, it is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. It's not me. It's it's the work of God. Respond to him today. Don't walk out of here without doing so. Is there anybody else here today? Is there anybody else here today? Is there anybody else here today? Rest of the church, we're almost done. We're not going to do this forever. Anybody else here today? Is there anybody else here today? We pray and we pray. Anybody else here today? He lived the life you should have lived. He died a death you should have died. Acknowledge and believe in Christ. His life becomes yours. Is there anybody else today? Is there anybody else today? Come on up. Is there there anybody else? Is there anybody else today? Is there anybody else today? I want some of you guys to come on up and to join us. Some of you guys come on up and join us. Come on up. I'll be right back. Stay right here. Stay right here. Hi. Come on right here. Come on right here. Right here. I want, and if there are, is there anybody else? Is there anybody else today? Sorry for getting emotional. This is why we do what we do. Some of you guys come up and join us and lay your hands on my brothers and sisters. We're going to pray to you. God, I thank you and I praise you for your work here this morning. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for who you are and the work that you do. I thank you for the man that stands here before you and before this church family. God, I thank you that you speak. I thank you that you're alive. I thank you that you move. And God, it's an amazing, amazing sight as we see, as we see your work here. 
for those of you that are standing up front, I'm going to say a prayer. You say this prayer in your heart. This prayer is not a magic prayer. It's not what's saying. But it's a prayer that's reflective of what it is you're committing to do, what it is that you're believing to do. Jesus, I thank you for your cross. I thank you for your work of salvation. I thank you for coming to this earth and to die on our behalf and to rise again to redeem all things. I confess that you lived the life I should have lived and that you died the death I should have died. I repent of my sins and I surrender my life to follow you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you, Father, for this work. And God, we pray for these men and women, God, as they go on this journey. We pray for this church family to come around them, to love them, to care for them, to keep in contact with them, to reach out to them, God. For them, Lord God, to, to, to have such an unbelievable, loving community around them, Lord, that are reminded that this Christian journey is not an individual pursuit, but that we do this together. I pray that they would not fail to have even one person, God, there all the time, God, who would be, God, their support, their encouragement, their pray this in Jesus name amen church let's give God a big huge hand for what he's done let's all stand together let's all stand together as we close Let's all stand together as we close this morning. Because of time, I just want to pray a prayer blessing, and I want to ask the choir to come on up, and I want them to bless us as we venture out and leave this place today. Let's all stand together. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you've done. And God, I thank you that in this season of Advent, as we await your coming, God, that you wait for your people. You wait, God, your people, your redeemed, to begin the work of restoration, to, to continue the work of restoration that you began. And God, as we leave this place today, help us to remember, God, that you are at work, that you are with us in our workplaces, neighborhoods, schools, and families. God, that we do not lack anything, God, to be your kingdom vessels to be a proclaimer and to somebody who would embody the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we go forth, we go in peace and in joy and in strength. All praise, all honor and glory belong to you forever and ever and ever. And all of God's people said, and all of God's people said, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Show me your way. Show me your way.